I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 26 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is the deeply talented, very smart, often funny, Robbie Falks. Robbie tends to be called an alternative country singer-songwriter, though his 2016 album, Upland Stories, earned a Best Folk Album Grammy nomination, while the song, Alabama at Night, was nominated for Best American Roots Song. When their faces had said nothing, stepped outside and in the instant I knew I would not forget the sight Alabama at night Alabama at night He also has delved deep into the world of bluegrass has played plenty of rock and recorded albums that covered Michael Jackson songs People always told me be careful of what you do and the Bob Dylan album, Street Legal. Born in Pennsylvania and raised in Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains and then rural North Carolina, Robbie spent much of his professional career based in Chicago. Bloodshot Records released his 1996 debut album, Country Love Songs, which was engineered by Steve Albini and featured members of the Skeletons. It announced Robbie as a unique talent with keepers such as The Buck Starts Here and She Took a Lot of Pills and Died. Well, she took a lot of pills and Next year's follow-up, Southmouth, includes his ode to Nashville, Fuck This Town. Then came the major label move, a harder rocky 1998 album called Let's Kill Saturday Night on Geffen Records. This was toward the end of Geffen's days as a functioning label, and soon Robbie was back in the indie world for such albums as the lyrically intimate, stylistically sprawling Couples in Trouble, the covers collection 13 Hillbilly Giants, and the affectionately satirical single Fountains of Wayne Hotline. Now I've wrecked my brain and I've looked all around, but I can't find a way to freshen my sound. And now who do you call when you're down to one? Musical time, fountains of Wayne Hotline. Throughout it all, Robbie maintained and grew a loyal following, even as he was lampooning some of this crowd as Roots Rock Weirdos. Tina Fey and husband Jeff Richmond were such big fans that they gave Robbie a guest spot on an episode of 30 Rock. Meanwhile, Robbie Folks continued to make artistic leaps. His 2013 album, Gone Away Backward, with Albini again turning the knobs, stripped back the arrangements and took tongue out of cheek as he explored the landscape of his early life. Daddy used to catch his supper in this river, now you can't swim it. Smells like a 20-ton truck full of paint thinner sank down in it. Come visit a spell, see the plaque to our war falling. Nothing but a good time. These were some of his strongest, most intimate songs, including Where I Fell, I'll Trade You Money for Wine, and That's Where I'm From. White collar and necktie, that's where I've come. Half naked in the moonshine, that's 
where I'm Upland Stories, with its Grammy nominations, continued this progression. One man's troubles are his own. Sick and torn from wife and children. I should have never come home. Robbie loves to collaborate and in recent years has recorded albums with Linda Gale Lewis and members of the Mekons. A few years ago, he moved to Los Angeles. Why would he do such a thing? How has the move affected his songwriting? Does he play out in clubs there? Does he hang out with other famous musicians? Well, there is that visit with Amy Mann as she reads by her pool. We also discuss how his writing, singing, and playing have evolved as he pushes through his late 50s, how his musical palette has expanded, what his working relationship was like with Albini and the late producer Rick Will, and why he recently stuck up for Ryan Adams after sticking it to him for so long. Whether singing or speaking, Robbie Falks is one of our wittiest, most thoughtful writers and performers. Enjoy him now on Carol Pop. In some northern city, there's a straight nine to five. Give me paper and I'll push it, a truck and I'll drive. But no more I'll return to the land of my youth. Twenty years of heart. So you moved out to LA. When did you move? Uh, 2019, I guess, yeah, January 2019. So what's it now? It's been a little over three years. Yeah. And three and two of those years were pretty weird. So what spurred you to move out there? Well, the, uh, we were empty nesters and, uh, my youngest, uh, had just gone off uh, to college. So we we're like, well, we're not stuck here anymore. And, uh, where could we try? You know, it was basically three places, New York, LA, or Nashville. And LA seemed like the least hospitable in some ways. I, I kind of expected not to like it that much, but, uh, um, so I, I kind of packed up the house into a, uh, into a pod and put it into storage and went out there to a, um, to an Airbnb with Donna. But after a couple of weeks, I was, I was sold on it. I really, uh, I really like it out there. So, uh, so we rented a more permanent place and that's where we've been at. We're in a kind of a equestrian district. So, um, we're right across the street from a horse farm and it's, um, it's really, uh, it's just uh, kind of laid back and weather's nice all the time, obviously. And, uh, yeah. Do you ride horses? No, but I watch women riding horses and, uh, <laughs> Every morning, this is my sort of standard tale about my life in L.A., which uh, uh, in our little cottage that we live in, I open the window in the morning or I open the blind. I go out in the backyard and pick about 10 little tangerines and squeeze some juice and sit down and take my pills and watch the young equestrians riding their horses across the field. It's like uh, it's like having died. (laughs) You get any songs out of that? I did get, uh, yeah, I got one that starts uh, sitting on the front porch, face toward the hill, a trail of years behind me, and a night I had to kill. So um, that's also, I, I forgot to mention, we're a, sort of across from Griffith Park, which is either a, a large hill or a small mountain, depending on what you call it. And uh, so it's really un-city-like, you know, it's the horses, and then it's the river, and then it's the mountain. And um, so it's, it, yeah, you're right, it's a good place to be contemplative and work on songs and stuff. Now, were you were, were you moving out there for sort of personal reasons or was it professional? Like, would you thought, oh, it'll be nice to be in the heart of the entertainment industry? No. Well, personally, that's what I was fearful of, because, uh, you know, the times that I've been to L.A., it's impressed me as sort of ugly billboards and like showbiz everywhere. And um, 
and that part of it's, you know, to me, aesthetically anyway, it's a little bleak. Um, but uh, as I say, we're, we're kind of insulated from that. The reason we had those three towns was, I mean, Nashville would have been probably best for me professionally and New York and L.A. were the other two. And my wife is a voiceover um, actress, as you know. So for her, it made a lot of sense to be in L.A. And for me, I don't know, at this point, I can be kind of anywhere. Most of my uh, probably, you know, my my better paying gigs are in the Midwest because I've been there for so long. So it's, you know, it's a plane flight away, which we weren't anticipating the pandemic would uh, would be that obstacle. But uh, that having shut down everything anyway, it wasn't really an obstacle. So, you know, in brief, I can be kind of anywhere. And um, being in L.A., I, I don't think I don't think it's been any particular you know benefit to me so far. But I have noticed I think I've noticed that like old fashioned country music has some purchase there. Um, it's just a it's just a peculiar sense I have. I don't know if you uh, agree, but I, I feel like I feel like an audience in L.A. or New York, probably, that hears like, you know, something that's kind of rooted in Appalachia or just country mentality, you know, that that there's a sentimental attachment to it that's that's strong that maybe comes from I don't know what from just being, you know, trapped in an urban environment and a smoggy urban environment all the right. time. Is there a lot of that out there? Or are you sort of one of the rare birds doing that sort of music? I really don't know. I haven't gotten out that that much. Like during the pandemic, there's a a friend of mine, um, an engineer producer guy that lives um, um, a mile or two away that has outdoor sort of picking parties where, um, I don't know, a dozen people might come over on a sunny afternoon and, and play music. And that's been kind of my um, entree into the scene, but I haven't been playing clubs really. I played, I don't know, maybe four clubs since I moved out there three years ago. So I barely, you know, got my foot wet. Yeah. I mean, Chicago, you had these weekly, uh, you know, performances at the hideout. And I feel like you, pl you pretty much played with every musician who lives in Chicago by now. Are you, are you able to sort of get a sense of the musicians out there? I mean, obviously there are a lot of musicians there that a lot of them are sort of studio musicians, but are you able to kind of integrate yourself into that community in any way approaching what you're able to do in Chicago? No, not really. I mean, I can't do it in, in, you know, a couple of years at age 60 or whatever I am, you know, what I could do over 30. You're not 60 yet. Almost, but, uh, over 35 years in Chicago and coming there as a young man, it's just like such a store of human capital, you know, and then I, I don't expect I'll ever get there uh, in L.A. The big fear that I had or, or a fear that I had was the the bluegrass scene in L.A. was reputed to be kind of a dead zone. And um, I'm still kind of figuring that out. I've met maybe nine or ten musicians that um, in bluegrass, you know, that are fun to play with. And so in that way. It might be kind of comparable to Chicago. You know, there's not a ton of that in Chicago, but there's a little bit of it. And, um, you know, players like Don Stierenberg in Chicago and Greg Cahill and Casey Dreesen when he lived there and a couple others, you know, they made it really rewarding to, to you know, sort of try to keep pace with my bluegrass chops in Chicago. So that's a big piece of it for me. Are there people, you know, in that particular genre that I kind of work with? Have you found any clubs that have that kind of homey, you know, feel like the hideout or, you know, Fitzgerald's or places like that? 
Yeah, I was thinking for a while of doing like a uh, a hideout style residency over there, and um, I looked around a little bit, and I tried. Uh, I set up a residency at one place, and then it didn't quite work out. Set it up at another, and then the pandemic hit, and then I kind of lost interest in it. I mean, Largo's a little hideout ish because uh, you know the owner's kind of a scene stir like Tim Tutton is, and um, and it's got a little room there in addition to the bigger theatrical room. And then McCabe's is a joint where I played for probably 20 years now and, and continue to play at. And that's sort of more toward the beach in Santa Monica. And that's got a little bit of that. Um, well, it's not a hideout vibe, but I mean, there are places, um, but uh, I don't have a ton of uh, motivation <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask the other thing is that, you know, are you looking for that sort of thing again? Or was that sort of like you had that experience in Chicago and you're going to have different experiences out there? I think that what you just said, that sounds right. <laughs> have you uh, have you been in recording studios out there? Are you working on albums or? No, I'm working on an album, but I'm working on it uh, in Nashville um, because it's a bluegrass record. And that's where those players are, um, you know, more than L.A., but um, I've only recorded since I moved out there. I mentioned my friend whose name is Sheldon Gomberg, and he's got a nice uh, little studio at his at his place. And I was there once, and I think that's the uh, no twice. I think I've done two brief sessions just working on other people's projects, but uh, not really. Yeah, I was wondering if you would actually pick up sort of studio musician type jobs because you know you're a really good player. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, on those sessions. Um, yeah. Uh, fortunately, one of them was a banjo session, which uh, I'd love to be. Uh, I'd love to be on call as a claw hammer banjoist in L.A. because I don't think there are, uh, you know, more than a dozen of them. So I think that could be a little niche for me, even though I'm not that great at it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a fanciful idea. Maybe one day being a studio musician. I mean, that's a weird that would be a interesting lateral move at this point in life, you know, like becoming a horse rider. <laughs> well, you could, you know, you could be one of those LA studio guys, you know, when the next, you know, Steely Dan project is put together, you could be plucking the banjo in the background or whatever. Yeah. I could turn into a total dick and be a uh, <laughs> banjo player. Yeah. That, that, well, that is the reputation of studio banjo players. Um, <laughs> Got to look out for those. The pandemic you feel like, you know, that sort of slowed your kind of integration into that music scene or would you have sort of been hanging free with yourself mostly anyway? Um, I just don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what I would have been doing. It's just too, it's too uh, binary pandemic or no pandemic, you know, it's, uh, I can't quite compute the counterfactual, you know? Right. Well, how did you spend your pandemic? I loved it. I, I just indoors reading and, uh, <laughs> I started, uh, I started a book and I, um, made a little headway with that, not a ton. And really, I guess my pandemic was March, 2020 to September, 2021. And then I started working a little bit. That's, you know, the fall of last year and I continue to work a little bit. So, um, so the totally, the totally locked down and um, you know, intubated part of the pandemic was a year and a half for me. I mean, it was great. You know, I've got this place that I love being at this house and I didn't have to write songs because I wasn't really working on much. And I, I did a lot of reading and uh, it was great. 
who was, uh, you know, like a friend of mine said, uh, who's older than me, a musician said, I've been, I've been doing this without kind of a vacation for, for 40 years. And so to have this mandated one was kind of nice. So you, so you didn't see this as a time where it's like, Oh, I have all this time. I have to write all these songs. You saw it more as a time of, Hey, it's an enforced, you know, kind of time to wind down a little bit. So I should take advantage of that. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, I think, uh, you know, I don't like to write songs. It's not my favorite thing to do. And so I kind of do it when I feel like I have to do it. Um, which sort of means when I'm, going to put out a record. And so um, just about the time the pandemic hit, I was I was preparing to go in and start on this record. So in other words, I had the I had 20 songs written for it. You know, I had enough for the record and a little bit more. And there wasn't when the pandemic hit, then there wasn't any need to, uh, you know, add to the stockpile of songs. It was more like figuring out how I could limp along with the studio project. And it still continues after these years to not be completed. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, for me, I'm looking for any opportunity to be lazy and not go off and write songs, you know, these songs are the ones you're going to go record in Nashville soon. Yeah. I've been kind of limping along with it. So I think at this point it's probably two thirds done. It's been an interesting project and it's, um, and it's sort of difficulty because, um, because, uh, I guess the first session I did on it was in September of last year. So it was at the end of a year and a half of not performing. And as a result, I didn't perform as well on the, on the recording sessions as hmm. I'm sort of uh, used to. And when I heard the playback, I thought, boy, I, I just am, am falling short. And so uh, that ended up with scheduling a next session, which was like uh, with the idea of re-recording some of the stuff that wasn't up to snuff. And at that session, uh, right before that session, I got COVID, so I canceled that. And then there was another session, and but it was a briefer session with different people than I planned. And everywhere, anyway, the 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 virus, along with my uh, you know uh, slowed virus after effects and performance, have sort of added challenges to the project. And what would normally be a six or eight month you know, uh, working schedule is turned into, uh, uh, whatever it is now, two years and still going. Uh, what was your COVID case? Like, are you okay now? Oh yeah. It was very mild and it was, the timing was great. It was just a month after the booster shot. And so very mild effects. And I just exaggerated them totally. So my wife would keep like bringing me food and feeling bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank God for the, uh, for the vaccine. Did she escape it? Somehow she did. Yeah. Oh, good. As as we know. How about you guys? Knock wood. Um, knock wood. We've avoided it. You're trying to avoid it. And then all these people are like, well, you know, everyone's getting it anyway. You might as well just get it. I'm like, yeah, but if I've held out this long, <laughs> you know, if I can, if I can hold out a little longer, that would be good. Well, yeah, um, if you about through last winter, that was, uh, that was when it was certainly easy to get. And that's when uh, I got it. It's really luck more than anything else. Cause you know, when you got kids going to school, especially one in your house, who's going there and coming home every day, you just never know. Right. So, um, and you said, you said you started a book. I assume it wasn't like you started reading, you know, Anna Karenina or something like you actually started writing a book. <laughs> Both. I actually started War and Peace. <laughs> I, War and Peace was the that was I was actually going to say War and Peace and Anna Karenina came out of my mouth. So you did start War and Peace. All right. 
I did. I think I got the wrong translation, so I put it down. I was, uh, I'm waiting for the better, <laughs> better one. Uh, but the book I started, you know, actually, I, I think I might have had your book a little bit in mind um, about Take It to the Bridge with Steve Dawson, our friend. Yeah. Um, you know, just thinking about songs and what they, how they work and what they mean and how they're used by people um, led me to, to realize that I knew very little about that even though I kind of do it and think about it a lot and have taught it a little bit. Um, but there's so much more to, to figure out about why humans make and use songs that I thought I'd uh, dive into that. Yeah. On your, on your website and your blog, I mean, you're a wonderful writer and you've written a lot about songwriting on there and articulate it very nicely and always bring up interesting points that makes me think, Oh, that's, 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 yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. So it makes total sense for you to do something like that. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, sometimes I think that I know a lot about it and that's when I start to trip myself up. Like I, I realize sometimes when I'm saying to a student something like, well, consider, you know, taking, taking the register up, kicking the register up a notch for your chorus, you know, bring it into a higher register to make a soaring chorus. Uh, so one of the songwriters um, that I talked to um, for the book, Dan Wilson, um, said that his publisher told him that choruses are out now. Just don't write any more choruses because people aren't into those as much. Anymore. Right. Yeah, and I've I, seen that. Have you seen that too? In, in yeah, music? yeah, people are like, oh yeah, no, yeah, choruses are out and, and melodies are like optional. <laughs> melodies uh, are optional, yes. 7 a.m. waking up in the morning, gotta be fresh, gotta go, wet, gotta, I mean, <laughs> it's 10 years old. So there's so much that, is simply, you know, time dependent, you know, the things that I believe are, you know, rock hard theory that I just believe that because I happen to have been born in 1963 in America and like the kind of music that I like. Um, so, um, so that kind of stuff is fascinating to learn, like how, how fluid the concept of a song uh, can be. Well, like another question that I, that occurred to me that I haven't answered yet is how much our idea of the length of a song is just conditioned on, you know, the, um, the capacities of, uh, of, uh, recorded media. And so, you know, to go back two or 3000 years, how long would somebody sit and listen to a song? You know, like how long did Homer go on on any particular day? Was it minutes, hours or what, you know, how long were the songs? I would think Homer probably has some pretty long jams. I mean, I think so. if you look yeah. at the Odyssey and the Iliad, it's like, you know, those things are, they're jamming for a while. Yeah. He, he was the grateful dead of his time and we're grateful he's dead now. <laughs> yeah. What a long, strange trip that Odyssey was. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, you know, yeah. And, and then you had, yeah, everything was three minutes because that was sort of optimal for, you know, the little 45, you know, piece of plastic with a big hole in the middle and nobody uses those anymore. Um, you know, and then you had, you know, you had symphonies, uh, those were longer. So, yeah. And then you had, you know, then that like, you know, in the eighties, you know, we had all the, there would always be like the hit version that they would play on the, the, the one radio station, but then you'd have the 12 inch version. And that would be the one that sort of stretched out and you'd sort of get to choose. Do you want to listen to the six minute version or the three minute version? Right. So that suggests like, you know, a length between three minutes and what, like uh, an hour and a half or something for a symphony. I don't know what the outer limits of a symphony. Yeah. You had to be like Prague, you know, you'd be like a Prague band if you're going to do something long, like, you know, Jethro Tull or Yes or Genesis or something like that. Are you writing like 20 minute songs now? 
No, just intellectually curious. That's all. Well, when I met you, it, you know, which 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 would have been late nineties, you, you know, my you you done Let's Kill Saturday Night, which was you know the, your big which was big album at the time, um, and you know, I mean, like had a lot going on production wise and everything. But my sense of you from your taste was that it was mostly like sort of pre Beatles, you know, like country early rock and that sort of thing and then you know later you were doing these these you know hideout uh, residencies and i was sort of amazed at the scope of music that you were covering on those and and you would and you would cover sort of later songs you know even back back then i mean um but but you know you would do like you know your jerry reed and lou reed or you would do i mean you covered a ton of ground and i'm wondering if as you've gotten older you've just broadened your tastes a lot your knowledge base a lot you know or was that something that i'm just sort of imposing on you uh because that's what i've observed i don't know it's uh i'm thinking about how to uh, how to uh come back at that um so i've always loved like since i was you know probably six or something i've always loved just the sound of mu the recorded sound of music from the 20s 30s 40s uh and into the 50s has just always attracted me and this and the American styles of those times, meaning, um, you know, blues, rhythm and blues, country music, bluegrass, and then, uh, and then rock and roll and jazz. Uh, a little later, I started to understand jazz, but, um, uh, yeah, the recorded sound, all that, yeah, I mean, you know, meaning the nerdiness, the mics that were used and the rooms that were used and the instruments that were used. And then, the um the approach i guess you would say of those writers and the and the vivaciousness of the singers uh always just appealed to me uh on a gut level and then growing up you know just just being young and trying to and trying to uh, attach to and relate to music that was uh you know quote unquote of my era so being 16 or 18 years old and you know what's popular at that moment is very important to you when you're that age and so um so a lot of it i didn't really get i have to say and and it bothered me that i didn't get it so i kept working at it you know at a certain point it was like writing down the top 40 every week so and what was like the stuff that you didn't get like was it a specific genre or was it like just what was popular because there was like rock stuff, or like there was your your Aerosmith, but there was also your you know Lady Marmalade or whatever. So, yeah, I didn't really get any of that. I mean, I didn't get what you might call the big big dick stuff, like Aerosmith, uh, the more metal and more just more masculine shrieking stuff. Uh, I didn't get that much. Yeah, I remember like the kids in my school, like Kiss is so great. I'm like, okay, it sounds okay. I don't really get it. Or you know, yeah, you I was the same. Like, Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds would have a big hit. You're like, or Ambrosia would have a big hit, or or the Ohio Players. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of okay, but I don't know. It just doesn't like make me want to jump up and and holler. And so um, a little bit later, when the British New Wave stuff came in, I did I did get that uh, more on a gut level, and which came as a relief. You know, like here was something I, I finally kind of got. But that might have been the last. <laughs> That really might have been the last sort of event in popular culture that I really uh, got on board with, you know, N not that I disdain anything that came afterwards. I just don't uh, it doesn't like just knock me 
in the heart and and make me want to go out and learn a bunch of songs and and go to a bunch of shows you know as a genre i mean but in the meantime you know in all those years since 1980 um I, I feel like I've just sort of widened, you know, that uh, in terms of that original stuff that I liked, I've learned more about it. And I've also learned to appreciate other, you know, I don't know, Moroccan music and um, and uh, Dixieland music and uh, and just uh, and Ethiopian music and and and, and um, a, maybe a little classical. Though I still kind of struggle with that. So uh, just sort of learning and widening. But. Also, but also less and less popular music. Um, yeah, Beatles onward, popular music hasn't seemed to me, it, it doesn't seem to me as fertile as uh, less commercial kinds of music, I guess you would say. Is there any of that that you've kind of grown to appreciate more sort of looking back on it? I mean, like for me, um, I, I did the same thing. I, I, I was sort of, you know, like listening to, you know, like old Beatles records. I mean, they were, I mean, they were, I was not like contemporary on the Beatles when they were putting out stuff, but I kind of discovered them later. I'm like, Oh, this stuff is great. And you know, that I pick up, you know, wings of the speed of sound and I'm like, Oh, this isn't as good, but you know um, and then, but I had that shift where like the new wave stuff came in and all of a sudden I went from, you know, listening to super tramp and yellow and Billy Joel to listening to, you know, Elvis Costello and talking heads and squeeze and the clash. Um, and then later, you know, I, I would sort of go back and I'd be like, Oh, Stevie wonder, you know, I always liked his singles, but those albums are really fantastic. And I've sort of done more deep dives specifically into sort of like late sixties and seventies soul music, for instance. And I don't know whether you've had any sort of similar things where it's like, Oh, you know, I like this stuff passively, but it sort of got, it hooks into me later in life. Yeah, I'm almost 100% agreed uh, with what you just said. Soul music and other music from that era. Like uh the like going back into stuff that that you just loved when you were 10 years old and finding out, you know, A, oh, it's not that great after all. I hear all the flaws in it now or B, oh my god, I was so smart. This is really great. This is like right. certifiably great. Like uh, And sometimes it's both, by the way. And sometimes it's kind of both. Um, so I definitely had that emotional experience and I definitely thought, uh, I, I don't want to spend too much time marinating in that personal <laughs> emotional experience either. It seems like there's just so much good music in the world that to keep listening to the same Beatles and Elvis Costello records right. is only of a limited pleasure. But the other part of what you just said, I mean, I, I've just been listening to so much Carly Simon music lately and um and loving the craft of it and um and also listening to stuff that i've always kind of congenitally hated like steely dan and eagles just to just to push on the outer boundaries like how bad was that stuff and finding that it's not bad at all it's like you know maybe we're at an age now where we just have a, like a, gr a greater relationship to uh to whatever that is you know i mean what was it it was really high resource music right these were like how much money was spent on those records and on their production like hundreds of thousands of dollars right right i think it's because you're in la and once you're in la all that starts seeping in and you're like oh eagles laurel canyon music steely that Dan. really that really stings mark <laughs> i here's the thing i always liked steely dan and never really liked the eagles but but steely dan also it's funny. I just put a thing about Steely Dan on my Facebook page yesterday, and then they were mean to Amy Mann, which I cannot forgive. But um, 
Steely Dan, like the early records, they sound like a band and, and then the later stuff is much more sort of fussed over. And there's something to be said for, you know, albums like Asia as well. I even, I liked Gaucho when it came out. I know people sort of hate that now because I think it's so sterile, but the, but like Countdown to Ecstasy is a totally strange, fascinating, organic sounding album. that sounds like guys in a room playing instruments as opposed to, you know, 187 takes of, you know, a bass sound or something like that. That's my recommendation to you. Okay. Well, you've gone way past my knowledge of that stuff. Uh, in what <laughs> and what did you say about Amy? Was I, I, I didn't catch that. Oh, Amy Mann tweeted that she had, uh, she'd been dropped from the Steely Dan summer tour and that maybe they, they it, apparently they just didn't want to, they didn't think a female singer songwriter would go over well with their presumably bro audience. And so there's a very large Steely Dan backlash happening right now because everyone loves Amy Mann and thinks she's fantastic. And I, if I were paying to see Steely Dan, which I probably wouldn't, cause I think it's kind of bogus cause there are two guys in Steely Dan and one of them's not alive anymore. And I don't know. It's recreations. It's fine. I'm sure Steely Dan, Steely Dan, if you're listening to this, Steely Dan meaning Donald Fagan because he's the only one. Um, no offense. But uh, if they actually dropped Amy Mann from the tour because they thought she wouldn't appeal so much, that's crazy because she's written a lot of awfully great songs. You know, I'll take I'll take Save Me over any, you know, Steely Dan song that's been in a movie, even though I like the song FM. Yeah, they're really overthinking it, I think. Just like, who, who cares who's opening? Just forget about it. Just right. concentrate on your music. And uh, besides the fact that Amy's great, yeah. Yeah, no, when I when I belatedly, when I'm in my 70s and I finally have my hit band, I'm going to choose my opening act based on who I want to see open for me, not who I think, you know, my test you know audience is going to approve of. But especially, I mean, come on, Amy, man. I want her on this podcast, by the way. I've been trying, so we'll see. I did uh, catch up with her not long ago. She lives, she also lives not far from me. So, um, I mean, LA is great in that way and that you can have these sort of chance encounters with people or, or just easily set up, you know, just there's all this like intelligence and uh, yeah, this knowledge that's, that's right on hand that wouldn't be if you lived in San Antonio or, and uh, you'll like this, uh, uh, since I went ahead and dropped the name, that when I met, I went to Amy's house to talk to her in connection, in connection with that book that I mentioned. And she kind of lives up, uh, like the geography in L.A. is such that, uh, you know, the people that live higher up are the richer people, and we poorer people live in the lower sections. And so all day you look up in the hills at the wealthier people in their big houses that are ready to collapse. And uh, so so you can almost gauge people's incomes by how vertical, <laughs> how high up you have to drive to go to their house. And so her house wasn't like extremely high up, but it was definitely an upward journey from from my house. <laughs> and uh, and and she was waiting for me uh, poolside in the backyard under a canopy. So she has this kind of pretty big pool in her backyard. And here's this like lady with her legs propped up on her ottoman sitting in a wicker chair reading a first edition Theodore Dreiser um, obscure Theodore Dreiser, not Sister Carrie, but some other book, <laughs> like perfectly by the pool. Composed. Yes, yes, stiff spine, perfectly composed, 
spectacles on. I thought this fucking LA is great. <laughs> Those were the slim gals would swing their feet down the airport side of Franklin Street and I'd watch them in the not quite innocent way. I'm looking at them this evening. How has your songwriting changed over the years? Uh, well, it's uh, uh, one of the sort of sticky things that I say recently in my shows is that I'm trying to write true songs now. And uh, it's a little bit of a jokey reduction, but it's also uh, it's also accurate. So and true uh, just uh, mostly means that uh, I, I'm much more apt, uh, apt to um, cannibalize personal experience now than before. Uh, where I would have uh, felt uh, a little anxious to expose myself or even to think that my experiences had any particular meaning that anyone else would be interested in hearing. Um, that's as a 20 or 30 year old songwriter. And now, as, uh, as I say, one approaching 60, I feel like um, there's kind of a store of stuff built up in a human being at this point. And to focus on like imaginary situations is still possible, but why not take advantage of, uh, of the store of memory and work from that? It's um, sort of like going with the insight to that, like all of our lives aren't fundamentally that different, right? Which is an insight of country music as well as uh, some philosophers that, uh, you know, the life of a rich person, a poor person, a white, black person, person on this continent, that continent. I mean, they have obvious uh, surface differences, but uh, most of us, uh, are anxious and have short lives and fall in love and bear children and worry about death and and money and you know half a dozen other fundamental constants that we all share so that gives me confidence that in um in thinking through some specific thing that happened to me which is attached to like a geographical location and a date and you know names and places that um and in, in, in kind of diving down on a specific experience, I can uncover something that's, you know, common to a lot of people and use that in a song. Was, was there anything, was there sort of a moment where you pivoted in that way or was it sort of a natural progression? I mean, again, Gone Away Backward, a song like That's Where I'm From seemed like it was like, oh, this one's cutting pretty close in a way that, you know, maybe some of the earlier character stuff had a little more sort of tongue in cheek going on. They're exploring sort of what you're feeling now going through life as someone, you know, who's gotten older and has whatever stresses. And then there's also the kind of going back into your past and trying to figure out what that all meant when you were growing up and that sort of thing. So is it a balance between those things? I think the turn to more serious storytelling, um, is, is that kind of what you're talking about? Um, sure. Just choose something interesting in that <laughs> rambling, rambling question I asked and say something. Well, Highway 80 over to Iowa City, and then you take a right turn. <laughs> this is a, it's, it was a choose your own adventure kind of question. <laughs> uh, I, I experienced kind of a pivot. This, the way I felt it was that around 2008 and 2009, I was getting tired of what I had been doing for the, you know, the 10 or 13 years previous and was fishing around for a new angle um, in everything, kind of like writing songs and performing and and whether I plug in the guitar or put into a microphone, all these different domains. And, and I ended up being uh, more, uh, you know, what I just answered the last question about the songwriting um, and, and, uh, and I ended up working more acoustically and just kind of the music turned a little bit more reflective and probably a little bit less carefree and athletic and, uh, 
and and goofy at that point. But um, but in retrospect, I think I was sort of making that pivot for a lot of years before that too, because uh, I think really um, the first record I did was in 1996. So it was called Country Love Songs, and it was kind mm-hmm. of a it was kind of a purposely silly record in some ways, and um, and kind of a and had a little bit of a thought through aspect to it. Like, you know, what would country music have sounded like if this had happened, but not that. And, um, it was a little bit of a conceptual fanciful record. And and as soon as I put that out, I thought, okay, I got, I got to figure out a way to like get past that now and work toward a more, um, open, uh, area of land from which to put out records. And, uh, so, I think that uh, I think that for the next five or six records after that, I was just kind of trying to make that happen to try try to um, mitigate the effect of having premiered with that particular record, you know, while not disowning it or anything like that. But just just to say, hey, I can do other things, too, and and want to do other things. Right. Well, and you had the song Fuck This Town, which that was on um, Southmouth, the second album. Right. And and that became sort of a you became sort of known for that one in a way because it had it was because it was funny and it had you know a very direct uh, sentiment in the title. D- did you feel like that was sort of a trademark song of yours for a while? And and how did you feel about that? If so, yeah, I loved writing that song. It was just kind of blowing off steam. It was a fast one to write. Uh, you know, I probably wrote it in an hour or two, and uh, and it's hilarious. And maybe it was hilarious. It's probably in the category of that, that thing you did at the music box. Is it still funny? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it said it said the word in it, which is the most provocative thing about it, which at the time was maybe marginally OK to do. But I also got called out on it right away. And so um, that that is one reason I probably shied off from it, you know, in the years since of, of just performing it uh on stage but more generally it's just like uh when you do it when you write a song called fuck this town and then you perform it 200 times uh time number 201 you're just like i don't want (laughs) to i don't want to be tied to this hobby horse anymore you know and it's been one of the great good fortunes of my really uh small career that i don't have to do the same song night after night you know there's no song that I have to keep doing if I don't want to do it. And so uh, I just decided after 200 times, yeah, it's enough of that. You kind of have to act out that kind of song while you're doing it. You know, you have to act out the comedy and the, uh, the rage of the song. And so that's a little tedious too at times. Well, and it's, it's very different to be known for a song like that or to be known for, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, not that you need to be known for something, but but something like Alabama at night, or you know, again, that's where I'm from. Has, is it like it's like feels like a different artist from from that, and it it seems like that you're you're closer to those later songs than you would be to the earlier. It's like the early funny ones. You and yeah. Woody. Yeah. Well, you know, to the, the Martin Amos comment about when you go out on a book tour that you're an employee of your former self. Um, which is, you know, true of, uh, of, uh, music tours as well. But when you do a music tour and you're doing music that you wrote 30 years ago or whatever, it's like a really, you know, again, why, why do I have to like step into this personality that I barely remember anymore? Um, so if, if you don't feel like it just, uh, yeah, do something that you wrote more recently that you can more fully inhabit. 
on your blog, you wrote a tribute to Rick Will, who had uh, engineered your album, Let's Kill Saturday Night, which was the big commercial breakthrough record at the time, uh, I think from 1998. Um when you know in revisiting that period like how do you how do you look back at that album i mean it's definitely a more sort of produced rock record it sounds great i mean like this the material on it totally holds up but it's it's sort of a different animal from what you've been doing more recently yeah i don't know i haven't heard that record in so long seems like the guitar solo is good on that and the uh and the singing and the harmonies singing you know rob gerso did that and um so his thing still stands up um rick's uh that that was another challenging uh somewhat challenging uh recording uh process because rick was rick was a demanding but in kind of a stoner um semi-articulate way he was demanding he was he was literally stoned a lot of the time and he would um and he had kind of long hair to paint a paint a picture and he would wear beads and and it was just like having Keanu Reeves, you know, in one of those roles that he used to do, uh, produce your record. And he would like listen, he would lean in and listen and take a puff on his thing while you were playing in front of him. And then he would start jumping up and down on furniture and telling you, you had to be 14 years old again. You were playing like you were 31, which I was, if not older. Um, so he, he was not easily satisfied. He was definitely not satisfied with a workmanlike approach to music. And that, that was a great, uh, it was a great direction to be pushed in and a great thing to be told. I think at that point, you know, don't relax into professionalism is always a, a useful thing to hear. Uh, right. You no. Know? And to the extent that that record has, you know, any punkish youthful attitude, it's, uh, it's less my doing, than his because he was constantly pushing in that direction and that album came out on geffen big label did you were you swept up in the time of in that time of oh you know i'm going to be big or oh i really want this to sell or or any of that stuff um like and did that sort of affect you just that just kind of being sucked into that sort of commercial vortex yeah yeah it affected me adversely and so it was great that it ended you know i think when it it was just such a brief period of time, you know, whatever it was, eight or 12 months. And and uh, and uh, I think my feeling was uh, I've been waiting 18 years to enter the big leagues and now I'm finally there. And now I just got to hang on to my spot in, uh, you know, on the ladder and uh, and try to get up a rung at a time. I think that was my thought at the time. But then when the label kind of got folded into another label and I, and I was let go. Um, I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, I felt bad about it. And, and I had also lost a lot of money over that year. You know, the, uh, the advance that I'd, I'd gotten from them was, you know, it was okay, but it wasn't, it wasn't big enough to live on for years. And it, uh, it, uh, it went away. And I also was unable to go out and do like normally in life, you know, if money goes away, you just go out and work and get more. <laughs> That's the normal process. But sure. uh, they didn't want me doing that. And they were very fervent about it. And so so I didn't. I didn't I didn't go out and do other work. I didn't teach classes, for instance. And I, I, I didn't even, you know, take music jobs that were 
not involved in promoting that record. All of the focus was on promoting the record. So anyway, I was poor at the end of it and I was disappointed and I got over it in a few months and went on with life and, and life's gotten better since then. And, and, uh, it was, that was the cost of the education. Just, uh, just, uh, that there are other ways to do it than, than the way I was going at it. And that I got sort of sucked into a, a not very useful, uh, fantasy idea. Um, I've been happier just sort of like focusing on music and uh, just uh, simpler ways of looking at profit and loss. Uh, uh, right. Since then. What is what is your label situation now, by the way? I mean, you've had a lot. You, you, you were on Bloodshot to begin with. Then you had, you know, Geffen and some other stuff. Then you were back on Bloodshot. Yeah, Bloodshot, I think, has kind of gone away. Uh, my next record is coming out on a label called Compass, which, uh, like I said, the record's kind of got, it's a bluegrass record, and Compass does uh, a lot of bluegrass. I think they're pretty well known for that. Um, but they put out a lot of Irish and some Americana and a lot of bluegrass. And um, anyway, I'm not sure how long, I, I, I haven't uh, done the contract with them, so I don't know how many records they're going to ask for, probably two or something. So I imagine the next two will be for them. But um yeah, apart from the the label thing just always kind of works itself out in one way or another. You know what I mean? It's like you do a record and then either somebody's interested or multiple people are interested or nobody's interested, in which case you just put it out. Uh so it it hasn't been it hasn't been a big stumbling block fortunately for me for the last uh 20 some years since that 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 was a nice upshot of the Geffen thing was it just kind of advanced me a little bit and at this point i can i can use the method i just described like make music pay for it myself and then eh, somebody will probably be interested in it yeah i feel like the whole sort of importance of labels at least from what i can tell has sort of gone down like i can't keep track on of who's on what label i mean i think elvis costello has been on like six different labels in the last 10 years or something and i couldn't tell you which album was on which label but it doesn't really matter at this point to me at least yeah I, i'm not totally sure what the advantage of it is half the time you know it's like there used to be record stores and so it was really important to be on a label if you wanted to be in record stores um you know you weren't going to travel around with your records in the trunk like loretta lynn and just stop at various record stores and <laughs> beg them to carry your your record so uh, but when that went away um and if you take radio out of the picture, radio's somewhat gone away. You know, there's there's not a huge incentive like before, a huge need to to do that. Right. I mean, you and vinyl is back, so vinyl's outselling CDs again. So that's so like sort of the forty minute album as a format has kind of made a resurgence, just because people are putting out records it's, is that do you sort of tend to think in terms of that format anyway you know the album as opposed to the bunch of songs i still do yeah i like the idea i'm just attached to it and i don't know, know if it makes sense anymore but it's a sentimental attachment to uh oh here's 12 or 13 songs and the beginning is like a beginning and the ending is like an ending and in between it's kind of an arc uh i like that so I think I'm going to be doing that until death. And you've been doing a lot of collaborations too. You had Wild 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 with uh, Linda Gay Lewis. You had Jura with uh, the Mekons, the Mini Mekons. Are you are you looking to do anything more like that? 
not looking, but the stuff just kind of lands, you know, like those two things just kind of happened. So um, what I love is collaborating with one person. You know, I've really discovered that over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. And a lot of the times when I go out and perform, it's just with one other person. In fact, I just uh, I just um, I had a little solo run shaping up in July um, that just uh, the other day that I just uh, asked somebody that I don't really even know hardly to, <laughs> to come play with me. And it was just for the reason that I love playing with other people. It's a good way to in that case, it's a good way to meet somebody you don't know that well. And it's almost like sexual intercourse when you're working with one other person. Um, that the communication is so intimate and you're so hyper aware at all times, each person of what the other is doing in a nice combination of instruments like guitar and violin, which it often is. There's so much freedom that the instruments don't really overlap, you know, that much. And so you don't have to worry about not playing like, you know, oh, look for places just to not make a sound. You can always kind of be making sounds and interacting. So um, you, you said collaborations. And so, um, yeah, I mean, Mekons wasn't a collaboration in the same sense, but performing with one other person, that's, that, that's really great. I love that. Do you like writing with other people? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not like sex at all. That's like <laughs> dentistry. <laughs> When you started recording, you uh, you were with Steve Albini, and then you came back and recorded with him again later. Uh, and I had him as a, as a guest on this as well. But how did you guys meet, and what is your connection? Because people, you know, obviously associate him with sort of louder stuff, but you know, he he also just gets a very pure you know sound out of what he's done with you, and it seemed like a very simpatico uh, collaboration. Yeah, I work great with him, and I've learned a lot from him, and. Um... And I, I, yeah, I like his approach. And um, we started working. Um, our first recording was uh, on Halloween night, 1986. I just remember because it's Halloween, which, which uh, at the time he had a little place in his basement was where he recorded on Francisco Street there in a house with a, like a, a pine tree out front. And I uh, met him because uh, I had a job in a law firm Jenner and Block at that time, uh, downtown in Chicago. And one of the guys that I worked with was a sax player who had worked a little bit with, uh, who was friends with Steve and had played on a big black record or two. And uh, John introduced me to Steve. And, uh, you know, I was thrilled that uh, somebody that did, uh, that did with a, with a national profile, you know, was there available to be, to, to be hired and work on uh, my recordings and, and just kind of, you know, since we got along well together, I just kind of stuck with him over the years. What do you, what do you feel like he brought out of your uh, performances in those records? He, well, I mentioned Rick's thing of like, you know, yelling at you that you're, <laughs> that sounds harsh. <laughs> B14. But, yeah. B14, B14. So th there's something a little to that in Steve's approach where, where it's just, it's just so down to earth. Um, he doesn't really... He doesn't um, suggest arrangement ideas or get involved with the music in the way 
of most producers. He, he's got his domain, which is engineering and microphones and playback systems and cycles of compression and all that stuff, which, uh, which I just hate to think about in the least. So, so in that way, it's a nice relationship as well. I do what I do and he does what he does. But, um, but I like is sort of, I would call it a Midwestern, no bullshit approach, you know, like one time after I had done six takes of something, he said, well, I don't think we're really, the curve isn't going in a, an appropriate direction at this point, you know, meaning that, you know, it's not getting better. And so often that's true. So often the first time or two is the best. And there's just no point in doing something 10 times. Um, so, so he's got, he's got uh, a feeling for, you know, money's going, money's flying out the door for no reason. That's a great thing to have somebody paying attention to that in the studio. He's got a nice feeling for, oh, the tuba player is really influencing what's going on here. Like the, he's, he's, he's calling for another take to be done, or he's telling you that you need to sing this way or that way, which um, that's a funny thing. Like in my case, I've got, I haven't got the most authoritative uh, Putin-like um, personality in the studio. And so now and then a more, um, a, a bossier personality will actually take over the session. You know, like I said, a tuba player, that's not something that's happened, but you know, some, some player will do that. And at, at which point Steve will get on the talk back and go, uh, and go, uh, why don't we pay attention to the uh, opinion of the person whose name is going to be on this record? <laughs> <laughs> Make some <laughs> mordant comment of that, of that sort, which, you know, more or less gently reaffirms the hierarchy. And that, that stuff is, uh, I don't know. I appreciate that too. The humor and the down to earthness of it. You're like, yeah, listen to him. I'm in charge. Right. Right. Like he's, he, he throws his support behind this. Uh, yeah. This shy, less articulate person who happens to be, yeah. The person whose name is going to be on the record and is paying for the session. That's entirely appropriate. Right. That's interesting too. Cause, cause I wouldn't think of you as being shy uh, in general. And I, maybe that's sort of just, you know, how complex artists are. And then on one hand, you know, you're on stage and you seem very in command and very confident and, you know, funny and, you know, just quick witted and, you know, just totally, you know, knowing what you want to do, but then you get into the studio and you're still asking something of someone else. And it sounds like you, like everyone else is sort of like, I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable doing that. Yeah. Shy is probably, I mean, I'm shy in life. I'm not shy necessarily in the professional realm, you know? So shy is not the word for the best word maybe, but, uh, but I would say, you know how it is when somebody is totally great and competent at what they do, whether it's engineering or, or playing the piano and, and they're also confident and authoritative and talkative. And in that circumstance, I've definitely been in circumstances where that person, I'll start to defer to that person, um, more than is necessary. It being my record, <laughs> So right. uh, it's, it's great to have backup in those situations. Yeah. And it seems, you know, my impression is that Steve Albini really appreciates when 
like a band sort of has it together before you come into the studio. So you're not going to waste a lot of time sort of figuring out the arrangement while the clock is ticking. And, uh, you know, that if you sort of know what you want when you come in and you're a good band, then you're going to get along great with him. And he's just going to capture because he, he seems like he's very deferential to the artist's vision. And so he's appreciative when the artist comes in with that vision, I guess. Yeah, that's right. He has an almost religious feeling about uh, the guys that, you know, sit, um, uh, the antisocial guys that sit in a room and, and write music and then call up their friends and try to figure out how to play it. I mean, I, he, he thinks that's really um, just beautiful. And um, I think he likes that better than anything in the world, really. Um, you know, what we would call just musical creativity and especially amateurish musical creativity. I mean, did you get that from him when you talked to him? I, I firmly think yeah. that's true of him. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think he just sort of wants to him. There's like a hard line between people who are musicians and people who aren't musicians, the people who aren't musicians, you know, incorrectly assume the motivations of artists. And he's like, no, the artists are, it's all about the artists and they're not, you know, concerned about the things that you journalists or other people or fans think they're going to be concerned about. They're just trying to make their art and you need to protect that. Yeah, I think so. He and I actually don't quite see eye to eye on the value. I think of, uh, of those of, of professionalism, which I always have like a, a base level of, uh, of uh, respect and even deference toward, but uh, in other words, the amateurish thing uh, I also love. But uh, but he he takes it to a degree where he just uh, goes gaga over music that sounds to me like you know apes hitting cans or something. <laughs> um, I saw you on Twitter the other day, by the way, with a robust defense of Ryan Adams, um, and I'm wondering uh, what it had uh, a what is art in it too. A little snark in it. Well, it's it's you. So, well, but what inspired you to sort of sort of come up and say, you know, it's time to give Ryan Adams another chance? Oh, it just popped into my mind. You know, I just happened to see how he's got a sold out show at Carnegie Hall this May, and I said that aloud to my wife, and she said, "Well, good for him. Why not? He's you know can't just sit there doing nothing his whole life." And uh, I thought, oh yeah, that's uh, that's true. It's just so interesting in this time that we're living in that this, this story plays out again and again, right? That, uh, that there's a misdeed or a series of misdeeds in Ryan's case that gets exposed in the media or on Twitter or in the New York Times. And then somebody's like sort of often forced into seclusion or retirement apparently. And how do you, should you get out of that? And if so, how do you get out of that? Um, so I think that's an interesting thing to try to figure out, you know, and the only way to figure it out is by saying stuff out loud in society. So uh, I thought, yeah, I'll put that out there. You know, Ryan, um, to me, the um, the big division was between his, you know, acting like a rock star, which is like hitting on women, making promises to women, not coming through on them, dumping them, finding a new woman, you know, this sort of Philip Roth kind of behavior that he was engaging in with uh, with young female performers. There was a division between that and and the business with the underage girl in Ohio, which was being investigated by the FBI. So when I found out that that had investigation been concluded and he'd been let off the hook. Uh, thought, okay, well, now all that's left is these non-criminal misdeeds. And it's definitely, 
it's definitely a lower order of, uh, you know, one's a, one's a crime, one's a federal crime. And the other is rock star gross behavior in my view. And so, uh, so that being so, I think, yeah, go do, go do concerts. And if somebody wants to come see you and, and pay the ticket, um, and, uh, and, and overlook what you've done, uh, that's their, uh, that's their prerogative. Did, did people respond to that much? Yeah, I didn't get any angry responses to that as I often do when, um, when I tweet about him, <laughs> but, uh, which you do which you do often. Uh, I've done it a couple times anyway. Do you, are you friends with him or do you know him? I've met him a couple times. Yeah, I, I kind of took a dislike to him based on the meetings. And um, and I don't really like his music. And um, after saying a couple negative things about him in public, it was fun. And so I kept doing it <laughs> for a little <laughs> bit. You know, I have negative feelings about a lot of performers, I would say. But I, I don't share them because why? Uh, but <laughs> I figured I can just bundle all of my negativity onto this one person and just dump on him and uh and now you feel sorry for him no i don't feel sorry for him at all but uh <laughs> when his uh when this came to pass in the new york times what was that 2019 i think and 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 they exposed his uh misdoings uh, uh it wasn't that i was prescient it was just that yeah everybody knew what this guy was like and now everybody everybody knows i won't say it vindicated me but but there you have it the lady on Twitter said, I, I, I can't agree with this post of yours. I'm on team Mandy Moore. I think she said he, he had attacked her on Twitter and now she was on his ex-wife's team. So whatever. I mean, that was the worst blowback that I got from that, which wasn't blowback. Like years ago, you did an album of Michael Jackson covers, mm-hmm. like like some, you know, given the stuff that's come out with him. I mean, obviously you still hear his music all the time. Like does, does you know, all of Michael Jackson's child stuff you know abuse allegations does that change you know your approach to music or your enthusiasm for playing it or you know are these things are separate i don't really play his music anymore i mean that record was a was quite a while ago um 2010 he's still a great singer the jackson five record still sounds great thriller still sounds great it's just true absolutely i see i remember like years ago you had a on 30 rock i think they had a shout out to you yeah, they had a, uh, well, I did a song on 30 Rock. and uh, There you go. So it was my shout out to myself. <laughs> well, but Tina Fey had you on, though, because she's a big fan. Yeah, I didn't interact with her for that. Her husband sort of uh, gave me the assignment. And, uh, and it, yeah, it was easy. And uh, it was just a like a 30-second piece that I recorded at my friend's house. And I think that was their last year where they were doing more surreal, um, just weird shit on the show. Um you know, they had more of a carte blanche, you might say, or, or gave themselves a carte blanche. And uh, so the thing I did was was weird and wacky. It was uh, it was called Women Are Funny. Did you did that give you any sort of boost, either professionally or just kind of personally? Like, No, it didn't. It didn't. They forgot to include my name in the credits was one thing. And I, I got a note from the map. Oh, we totally forgot. Sorry. <laughs> if I had like a manager and stuff that could really help with this kind of thing, like getting a credit. You know, what does your day look like when you're, you know, you get up? I'm at about a half to two thirds uh, calendar now, as opposed to a normal year, a normal non-COVID uh, year. And it's been good. I, I did kind of miss performing. And you're back at space at the end of April. So I even miss doing this stuff, just kind of sitting and blabbing about myself, you know, because it's like, I don't know. It's terrible to say, but it's kind of fun. 
See, I want to, I want to do multiple episodes with you and like the next one, we'll just talk about movies and then we'll find some other obscure things. Well, you know, I, I've been turning them around every week. So, you know, it'll help me with the sort of effort of getting guests if I just call you every week. So yeah. Think how much easier life will be and, and more entertaining as we talk about movies. Absolutely. We were talking about doing that at one time, right? About having yes. a series. I think we're going to have like a movie club or something. And, you know, you and I would just like talk about movies and then people would have to watch the movies and listen to us. The thing, you know a lot more about movies than I do, I think, not only in a um, mental archive way, but you've probably been on movie sets, right? Some. Yeah. We could, so I'll come to LA. We'll go to, we'll go to movie sets together and then we'll do a podcast about going to movie sets together. Yeah. I would love to go on a movie set. That sounds, I don't know if fun is the word, but it would, it would like make me feel more like I know what I'm talking about when I. Yeah. I don't know if anyone will let us on, but, but I could try. Why not? It would, it would be a good excuse to get out there and uh, go hang out on movie sets with Robbie folks. That'll yes. be, that'll be the, it'll be the new spinoff podcast, hanging out on movie sets with Robbie folks. Well, happy, almost not 60th birthday, by the way. Same to you, pal. That's a wrap on episode 26 of Carol pop. Thanks so much to Robbie folks for the great conversation and music. Go to his website, robbiefolks.com where you can read his excellent essays and reflections on his blog and you can buy his music including revenge of the doberman a flash drive containing 53 studio produced songs there's also tour information about upcoming dates in the southeast on the east coast and in the midwest including an april 30th show at space in evanston thanks as always to web developer marty rosenbaum and to lou carlozo who recorded the carol pop theme Hero Pop is produced by Chris Swake, an expert at killing Saturday night. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and at CaroPop1. And visit the CaroPop website, CaroPop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and also this CaroPop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.